This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, an intern at Grace Church. Once you're back to your seats, if you could get your Bible, and if you could turn in your Bible to the book of Colossians, that's several books into the New Testament. Once you hit Galatians after the Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company. And we're going to look at a uh, section of scripture here in the book of Colossians that Paul wrote to a church that was, was deeply struggling with false teaching. Uh, it was a church that was really given to moving on, a church that was given, from, given to you know, taking the good news of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, and moving on to other things. And this church in particularly was uh, kind of threatened with a false teaching of an advanced Christianity. And in the same way that you and I uh, write this probably this very weekend are so quick to move on from Christmas and take down all the Christmas decorations and all the lights and all the tinsel and the trees and the ornaments and everything like that. That's what we did a couple days ago. Uh, Really, that's what Michelle did. Let me be honest about that. That's what Michelle did. Uh, We are, in the same way, given to uh, moving on from the simplicity of the gospel, moving on from the simplicity of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to the next experience. And that's exactly what this church was tempted to do. Move on. Move on to the next experience. Go from experience to experience. And what was once okay in the gospel, what was once satisfying, what was once uh, fulfilling in their experience of who God is for them, suddenly was not fulfilling anymore. This false teaching that came into this Colossian church, which is why Paul writes this letter to address this false teaching and sends it by way of Epaphras, who was a church leader who probably got saved under Paul's ministry, sends this letter on uh, to this church through Epaphras to address this false teaching that does not necessarily deny Christianity. It doesn't subtract from the essential core teachings of Christianity. But it's a more subtle form of heresy because you arrive at heresy both ways, both by subtracting from the gospel and adding to the gospel. And the false teaching that this Colossian church was under was an advanced Christianity in addition to the truths of the gospel and in achieving spiritual fulfillment and experience, not through Christ, but through mystical visions, maybe of angels, cosmic powers, Maybe brought on by asceticism and harsh treatment of the body and through fasting and just raw discipline and legalism and rules. And over time, what was a healthy church began to look like an unhealthy church because an an influential teacher, at least one in this church and probably a growing faction in the church, began to have influence and sway and the church began to move away from the gospel. This false teacher is described in chapter 2, verse 18, as a, as a person who was insisting on asceticism, that's harsh treatment of the body, and the worship of angels, and going on and on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That's chapter 2, verse 18. So the focus here was not, is Christianity true? Which is what a lot of heretical groups today 
They're not asking that question. Is Christianity necessarily true? But do you find fullness of experience in Christianity? As a Christian, where do you find fullness of spiritual experience? Where is that found? Is that found in Christianity or is that found somewhere else? Maybe angels, maybe visions, maybe rituals, maybe rules. See, maybe the fullness of spiritual experience is found outside of Christ. And what Paul wants to say in Colossians is no. He wants to say in oh no, fullness of spiritual experience is found in Christ alone. The fullness of Christianity is found in, hello, Christ. That's what he wants to say in this letter. He reminds them of who Jesus is for them and what Jesus has done for them. And what I want to do is go ahead and read verse 15 through 20, which is where we're going to mostly spend our time in this morning. And we'll pray and and get started. Chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, your word promises that whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And Lord, we want your word to be something that we dwell under, not something that we hover uh, over and And evaluate, but we want to dwell under your word. We want it to evaluate us this morning. And there, as we let your word evaluate us, God, may we find our peace and our standing and our identity. May we find truths that set us free. God, as we rest in the shadow of the Almighty under your word this morning, Lord. So, Lord, let your word be what what you promise your word to be. Let it be light to our eyes. Let it have its reviving effect in our hearts as we look at a new year, even a new decade. Let it bring the peace that we we so desperately need in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I start in in verse 15 just with the first word, he? Because I don't want to assume everybody in here knows what that word is. There's There's a meaning why he's going in verse 15 to talk about he is the image of the invisible God. We want to make sure that we know who he is talking about. He is talking about Jesus. We know that he is talking about the same Lord that shows up in verse 10 in chapter 1. The same Lord Jesus Christ that shows up in verse 3. And he prayed in verse 11 right before verse 15. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. All those things come from his glorious might. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He's talking about identity has, has happened. Uh, a new qualification has come to people, now called saints. Verse 13, he has delivered us, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now that's who he is talking about, the kingdom of his beloved Son. The Son, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, through the Son, the Son that He loves, the beloved Son. And that's who He's talking about in verse 15 when He says, He, the Son that He loves, the one in whom we have redemption, the one in whom we have forgiveness of sins. He's going to root forgiveness of sins and redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure that you and I and this Colossian church never doubt. How are we redeemed and how is it that we have forgiveness of sins? And how can we rest assured that our sins are forgiven? It's because our sins are rooted and our sins, our sins are forgiven. And the forgiveness of sins and redemption is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. So look, look at verse 15. That's who he's talking about. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. An image is something that represents something else. Like you hold up a mirror and it shows a reflection of something. And it's not an altered reflection. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about everything that we need to see about God is found in Jesus Christ. Everything that we want to know about this heavenly father is found in Jesus Christ. He is the one who reflects and images forth the father for us. And this is very comforting to us, because all of us have had fathers who have let us down at one time or another. We've had uh, fathers who um, you know, weren't the perfect reflection of a heavenly father. Some of you maybe have bad memories, or maybe as a dad, you're aware of your own failures and your own weaknesses as a, as a dad to your own children. And so the question becomes, well, where do I look to to see the perfect reflection of of my heavenly father. And the scripture says, you look to Jesus, who is this image of the father, this perfect reflection. Hebrews 1, 3, we, we heard it this morning. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. God's radiance is glorified through Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. Uh, John said that no one has ever seen God. No one. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus makes the Father known. All that we need to know about God is found through Jesus Christ. Here's how John Owen uh, said about it. He said, the incarnate Lord, Jesus, is the medium of all communication between God and us. In him we meet, in him we walk, all influences of love kindness from God to us are through him all our returns of love and delight and faith and obedience unto God are through him everything comes through Jesus from God all of our faith and joy and obedience comes to God through Jesus Christ he's the medium of all communication so it's no small thing that Paul starts this this defense saying that he is the image of the invisible God Everything that we want to know about God is found only in Christ. And in this day and age where we 
look for other places to see what God is like. Maybe you're tempted to to see God in other things, in other people, in other leaders. Maybe in other forms and persuasions of Christianity. You would not be unlike the temptation of this Colossian church. And Paul says, Colossian church, if you want to see what God is like, don't look for God in another place. Like Thomas, when he, when he looked at Jesus, he said, you know, show us the Father and it would be enough for us. And Jesus, it's almost a nonsensical question to Jesus. He says, have I been with you so long that you would ask to see the Father? Do you not know that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And I am the perfect reflection of the Father. Well, this image of the invisible God, Jesus, it says, is the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you were just to take that phrase and if you were just to kind of cut it out of your Bible and rip it out of its context, you would almost see the words firstborn and think that that must mean, you know, Jesus was born at a a point in time that the Son of God had a starting place. The error with that is that Jesus would then be a created person. He He would come under some other created being which is taught today in all kinds of uh, heretical places. This word firstborn doesn't mean that he was at any time created. The Son of God never came into being. He's eternal. But this is an idea of highest and supreme authority. It was said of David in Psalm 89, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's the idea behind the the word firstborn. Paul's intentionally using this word not to confuse the Colossians church. They, They wouldn't have been confused by this word. But to say that, you know, Christ is the highest of the kings of the earth. He has the highest and the supreme authority over all things. This church who is who is riddled with cosmic powers and deities out there. And there's just they're just so concerned with with what's invisible and what's beyond them and things that they can't control. And Paul wants to say, this Christ has supreme and highest authority over all those cosmic powers that you're so concerned with. This firstborn over all creation creates all things. This is another reason why you can't just read the firstborn of all creation and say, well, he was created. No, he wasn't created. All you have to do is read the next verse. He's the firstborn of all creation, the one with the highest and the supreme rank of all people and all powers. For by him, all things were created. Note that word by him. Everything comes through him. By him, all things were created. Paul's not leaving any idea, any power, any rule, any authority, any created thing outside of the influence and the power and the creative uh, ability of Jesus. Jesus is the one who through him creates all things. And those things are in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's going to say it again, all things, in case you were wondering, in case you missed the all things before, he's going to say it again, all things were created through him and for him. So note those prepositions. By him all things were created. Through him all things were created. And it closes with verse 16. For him all things were created. That's a, that's a pattern that Paul uses again and again. By him, through him, and for him. The centrality of Christ in all things, in all of his creation, 
is seen in what he has done. Through him all things were made, John 1.18 says. So in Genesis 1, when we, we read the Genesis account of how the, the world was made, we can see the Son of God right there. We see the preeminence of Christ right in Genesis 1. So when it says, let there be light and expanse in the heavens, the very next phrase that we read is, and it was so. J.I. Packer says, you know, Christ is the creative utterance of the Father. Everything that the Father initiates, Christ fulfills in his power. So when it says, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, when God says it, the next phrase is, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Things come out of nothing when Christ speaks, when he creates utterance, power. And life and creation happens. When God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and every creature that's way down at the bottom of the ocean floor that we don't even know about, like Nessie. God creates. God speaks, God creates. He speaks, he creates. When God says, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. It's not like God has to go back into a boardroom and pull out a white piece of paper and come up with some ideas. It just happens. God created male and female, separate and beautiful in creation. God creates after he speaks. He speaks and he creates in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. When he creates, the Son of God creates visible things that we can see, and the Son of God creates invisible things that we can't see. Think about all the visible things that we can actually see with the eye, with the untrained eye, and all the visible things that we can see through telescopes, and all the visible things that we can see through microscopes. Things like galaxies, and things like quasars, and things like neutron stars. That the, the density, oh, good, I just have to go off on this. The density of a neutron star, if you just had a teaspoon of a neutron star, it's so heavy, it's like 300 million elephants inside of a thimble. He creates things that dense, and he creates things so undense, like the planet Saturn, that if there was an ocean big enough, you could just set the planet in the ocean, it would just float. Visible things that we can see through Hubble telescopes. And things that we can just see every day of our lives, like snow and rain. Snowed the other day in Texas. How cool is that? Who brought that? Who created that? Who created those snowflakes? The Son of God created those things. He spoke those things into being. The rain that we, we see fall on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Who causes the rain? Who came up with the rain? Jesus came up with the rain. The things that we, we see with the with the microscopes like proteins and amino acids who came up with all of that christ did colors laughter dancing things that our children can look at and and enjoy the visible things of creation the son of god brings forth what about the invisible things there what about the invisible things like gravity we can't see gravity we can see the effects of it what about wind Invisible realities that we can't see and ideas and dreams, melodies 
And we, we can see the effects of faith and we can see the effects of love and we can see the effects of joy and hope. But we can't see the invisible, intangible thing of, of faith inside of a person or love or peace. And yet all of those invisible things also come from Christ. For by him all things were created visible and invisible. And he does all of this, what theologians call ex nihilo, means out of nothing. He doesn't need something to create another thing. He doesn't go into the back of his storage shed, look for things, and then build something out of what's in the back. He doesn't lack anything. When he speaks, he creates. It's not like me. I created this thing with, uh, created this uh, Star Wars uh, rebel assault ship. Uh, a couple of days ago on New Year's Day, that's how I spent two hours just creating this thing. It was 200 some odd pieces. I was quite proud of myself, and then it was kind of anticlimactic because it was just this tiny little thing at the end of it. But it took forever to do that, and what I needed was I needed directions, and I needed the parts. I could not move forward in creation without those things. Jesus can and does. He just speaks, and things happen. Look what else. He is... Over all visible and invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So not just creation, not just created things, but rulers and authorities and powers of this world. This has in it the idea of earthly governments. So it's right to think about the Son of God being an authority, a firstborn authority over every political institution. He's a firstborn authority over every government. He's the firstborn authority over every ruler and over every king. In this way, Daniel 2.21 is right that he removes kings and he sets up kings in his firstborn highest rank authority as the son of God. But this idea also has with it the cosmic powers. What he wants to do in this book is address this biggest fear that they have of these cosmic powers and what he doesn't do is deny the cosmic powers or say that they don't exist or say that demonic oppression or that angels just simply just don't exist like we might be so tempted to do nor does he take on their false ideas about the cosmic powers one by one he just clumps them all together and says this he is before all things all things were created through him whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he just brings all those ideas together. You know, he'll say in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul never denies the reality of these powers in the world, but he says that Christ overcomes these powers. He says in Romans 8, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. At no point do you see when he's writing this, any kind of dualism existing in the universe where Jesus, the good force, is fighting you know, Satan and the cosmic powers, the dark force. Kind of like a Star Wars episode. 
where you just have to line yourself up with, with the good and hope you don't come over here to the bad. No, Christ is over all authority and over all power and over all darkness. For all things were created through him and for him. And this puts all the arguments of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Muslims to death. Look at verse 16. All things were created, look at those prepositions, through him, all things were created for him. In other words, he's the means by which everything that is created exists. But he's also the goal by which everything exists. And this is what Jehovah's Witnesses will not say, what Mormons and Muslims will not say. He's not the goal. If he's the goal, then he's equal with God. If he's the purpose, if all highest praise should go to the Son of God, then he's equal with God. He's equal with the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses will say, no, Jesus might be exalted, but he was once Michael, the archangel. Mormons might say, well, no, uh, Jesus is the product of physical union between the Father and Mary. And not equal with God, a, a created being. Muslims will say Jesus is a prophet and didn't die on the cross, so don't expect atonement from Christ. In all of these major world religions, Jesus is created. And that's not what Scripture teaches. Through him, for him. Look at verse 17. He is before all things. Everything finds their starting place in him. All things. You hear the repetition? Those two words will come up again and again. All things, all things, all things, everything. So if you were to say, Jesus, how did you come to be? It's a nonsensical question. It's like asking, you know, how, how, when did eternity start? At what point does infinity begin? You'd be asking Jesus, the Son of God, not to be the Son of God. The Arian heresy that Jesus has created was, was uh, denounced finally and fully at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Where the exalted views of Jesus, but it created Jesus, which says this does not match up with what Scripture says over and over again. Not just here, but throughout the New Testament. Look also at verse 17. In him, all things hold together. Just like Hebrews 1 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only does he create the universe, not are all things created by him, but he upholds everything. Douglas Moose says, what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person. The resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle the nuclei. Gravity would cease to work and the planets would not stay in orbit. I love the, anti, the, um, you know, the apocalyptic movies that come out every few years, especially like when there's a big year. Like the year 2000, we saw tons of apocalyptic movies. And I think there was a recent one I didn't see, 2012 or something like that. Just some apocalyptic uh, you know, just movie, just end of the world movie. I just, I, I have to admit, I kind of like those movies where there's just these aliens that are coming and they're just going to wipe out the entire earth or there's just some disease and it's spreading and how do we stop the disease and, uh, you know, you now, or, or there's a comet, it's coming, it's going to hit the earth. I, I, great idea. We'll, we'll 
you know, launch out after the comet. We'll get on the comet. We'll blow it up. We'll come back. We'll arrive, arrive on Earth. Be, there's some Jack Bauer that's able to pull this all off. There's some Savior out there that's able to uphold the universe by his power. Now, I just have to admit, if I was not a Christian, those movies would frighten me to death. And I probably would be looking for a Jack Bauer. Maybe, you, maybe this morning you're still looking for a Jack Bauer. Jack Bauer doesn't exist. Jesus does. And he holds the universe together. The reason why this earth doesn't go right into the sun is because of Christ. The reason why a planet doesn't land and hit our earth is because of Christ. He holds back disease. He holds back huge tragedies like that from time to time, even though there's a point and a purpose and a renewing of this creation. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. And one ironic thing about verse 17 is you might be able to look at that and say, you know, I I believe that. I believe he's before all things. I believe in him all things hold together. You could affirm all those things that I just said, but you could, you could say, you know, I believe he holds those things together, but I doubt his ability to hold my family together. If I'm honest, I doubt his ability to hold up my health. He may create, have created me. He might have created the circumstances around me, but can he hold me up under this temptation and this trial? What about in the midst of a breaking heart? Anybody's heart breaking this morning? Maybe you're just going through a season of your life where it just feels like your heart's breaking. It's just, and it just stays broken. Who can hold up the broken heart? Maybe you're asking that this morning. Who's going to hold me up in this year? Maybe you can't even think about a New Year's resolution. You just want to survive the computer of your life is like survival mode. Just push that button and I just want to make it through another day. There's one who can uphold you. There's one who holds your life together. His name is Jesus. Look at verse 18. And here we're really getting into good news because if that's all we knew about Christ, he would be feared and not loved. He'd just be another cosmic power that we are scared to death of, like this Colossian church would be. But he is not that to the church. He is head of the body, the church. And this idea of head is that he controls the body. He gives it life and ability and direction. And what's interesting about this phrase, that he's head of the body, the church, is that Christ is supreme in the church in an entirely different way than he's supreme in his creation. Notice the language. The language is shocking. We're used to calling each other the body of Christ, but the language is shocking. Are we in relationship with Christ? You better believe it. He's the head of the body, the church. We are his body. He is our head. All life comes from the head. Direction, nourishment, sustenance comes from the head. Truth and guidance and light comes from the head to us. We are completely dependent upon Christ. We are in an organic relationship with Christ in an amazing way. Ephesians 5 says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. 
because we are members of his body. He is constant life to us. That's the relationship that we are with this with this Christ, the head of the body, the church. And notice also that he is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Look at verse 18. We're getting into even better news. His resurrection guarantees the resurrection of everybody who's going to follow him and trust in him. As head of the body, the church, because we've been united to Christ by faith, everyone who has repented of their sins and turned to Christ as the head of their life and as the authority of their life, everybody who yields their life to this Christ shares in the resurrection of Christ. He's the firstborn from the dead. Christ is the first. He's the highest rank over death. He, 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 he's risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way in talking about the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and he was buried And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And then an interesting thing Paul does at that point is to say, yeah, he was raised all right. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then he appeared to me. Jesus died, buried, resurrected, and he appeared He went on an appearing campaign to prove his resurrection is real and to prove that the atonement happened, that Christ has made atonement perfectly and completely. Nothing else remains to be done. And he is the first fruits of our resurrection. And if if Christ has not been raised, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's the idea behind Firstborn from the dead, we are assured that we will be resurrected from the dead because we have a firstborn who is over us, who has conquered death. He has his victory over death and over the powers of death. He's resurrected from the grave. And he's resurrected from the grave, verse, verse 18 says, so that there's a purpose to his resurrection. There's a purpose to his, him being firstborn over creation and being firstborn over the church and all those who are raised from the dead along with him so that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent is a big $3 word that basically means having supreme rank or honor. Maybe your translation says supremacy, so that he might have the supremacy. It means that he might be the first place in all things, all things in our lives. And that's theologically what it means. And practically, it basically means whatever your life orbits around is what's preeminent in your life. It's whatever you think about all the time. It's whatever you you spend your time daydreaming about or spend effort on or spend money on. An illustration from my life as a kid. At one point in my life, basketball was preeminent. You would never know that if you and I got out on the basketball court, but 20 years ago or whatever, it was pretty preeminent. I had a coach that told me, you know what you need to do in order to be like Magic Johnson, who was my boyhood hero I wanted to be like magic I wanted to just do all the things that magic Johnson could do with the basketball and he said well, the way you do that is you 
you, you carry the basketball around everywhere that you go. And he, he meant it. I mean, he said, you know, everywhere that you go. So if you go to the supermarket, you're bouncing the basketball. You know, you're going, you know, you're doing your chores, you're bouncing the basketball. You're in the house, as your mom lets you, you bounce the basketball. When you go to sleep at night, you take that basketball with you. And, you know, you, you do drills before you go to sleep at night. And so basketball was my life. My life orbited around basketball. I carried the basketball around everywhere I, th- I went. I thought about it all the time. I daydreamed about it all the time. Anytime I wasn't you know, playing basketball, I was watching it on TV and watching my beloved 1987 Los Angeles Lakers with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and James Worthy and Kurt Rambis, the big, tall, white guy, I was consumed with it. It was preeminent. It, it had a supreme place in my life. And maybe you know what that's like to have something that is a, has a supreme place in your life. And what Paul wants to say is, those things are all good and well, but let Christ be preeminent in your life because all resurrection power comes through Jesus. In, in the New Testament, when we think about regeneration and sanctification and serving and suffering and all of these things, all of these things are empowered by the resurrected Christ who is our head, through whom we get power and nourishment and life and sustenance. So regeneration is being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Resur- the resurrected Jesus makes us born again. The resurrected Christ gives us grace. First Corinthians 15 says, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. He'll say right here in verse 29 of chapter 1, I toil struggling with all his energy. What energy? The resurrected power of Christ's energy, which so powerfully works within me. It's seeing all of life as Christ being preeminent over. So when we serve, we do so, like Peter says, by the strength that God supplies. Well, how does God supply the strength? God supplies the strength through the resurrected, preeminent, supreme Christ. And when we undergo suffering, and some of you are going, undergoing suffering, we do so recognizing that the resurrected Christ supplies this power so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh through and in our sufferings. And even in our sufferings, that we might know this Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering. So this is what it means for Christ to be preeminent. And why should the resurrected Jesus have this kind of preeminence? Verse 19 tells us why. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the same thought in chapter 2 verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So it's wrong to think of Jesus Christ as born of two parents and he's a human being and he's given to the same desires that we are. Kind of like the Da Vinci Code, which is a blasphemous movie. And at one point in his life, God's deity dropped in on him. And that's how the divine and the human mix. So he's not indwelt by God in the same way that we are regenerated and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. He has always been God. And the fullness of God has always been the Son of God. And at a point in time, the fullness of God took on a human nature. And the taking on of the human nature did not in any way dilute or lessen his glorious divine nature, and his glorious divine nature in no way diluted or made his human nature non-real. 
Both are true. He is the one and only God man able to reconcile to himself all things by those who have faith in him. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's the Old Testament idea of the presence of God filling the temple. Now the presence of God and the place of God and the meeting place of God is Christ. It fills him. He is the fullness of God. And not only did this did this come to be, but look at verse nine of chapter two in him the whole fullness of deity dwells 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 bodily forever he's forever the god man for us because his eternal sacrifice eternally saves us from all of our eternal sins his infinite sacrifice and his infinite personhood redeems us forever and he's able to reconcile verse 20 says all things to himself we'll close with this Some people have taken verse 20 and they've said, you know, where it says through him to reconcile to himself all things. That that must mean some kind of a universalist idea that Jesus somehow saves all people and the doctrine of hell doesn't exist. And there's no judgment for those who rebel against God, even demons and Satan. Well, the New Testament doesn't teach that. There's no no place in Scripture that would ever teach that in the Scripture doesn't teach that at at all look at verse 15 of chapter 2 this helps us understand actually look at verse 14 of chapter 2 this helps us understand what he means by reconciliation it's a unique reconciliation he's using this word specifically verse 14 says by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross. So for believers are reconciled in a unique way right there in verse 14. There's also a reconciliation here of, of verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Christ exercises an authority and a victory and a vanquishing over his enemies. So enemies do exist. Verse 20 does not teach a universal reconciliation, but a, a, a power over all, all powers. So in other words, peace is arrived through Christ two ways. The removal of hostility through grace, that's believers, and the subjugation of enemies through power. So every knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and they'll either do it voluntarily or under compulsion. And that's the idea behind this idea of reconciliation and the making of peace. Christ is the peacemaker and his death and his resurrection on the Christ secured peace and victory and vanquishment against all enemies. And he did it by the blood of his cross. That's how he did it. The most amazing way that peace ever comes about in the universe is through the peace of the cross, the blood of the cross. The sacrifice of love of Jesus. So why is this important to us? It's important because maybe today you are tempted with the same temptation of the Colossians. Maybe what they were struggling with is what you currently struggle with. Maybe you are tempted to pray to saints or angels. The, The cosmic powers out there seem real to you. They seem maybe more real to you than Christ. Maybe you were taught to pray to saints and to think about angels a great deal. Maybe discern angels and demons and things like that out there. Maybe you pray to them and maybe your life makes more sense by thinking about them a lot and you're tempted to to dwell on them. Or maybe you're tempted to think of demonic powers controlling you that you need to somehow discern some kind of territorial spirits out there or something like that. 
Or maybe visions in your life or in your culture increased your spirituality. Maybe your church upbringing somehow visions and impressions and things like that uh, somehow gave you rank and honor and admiration. Maybe you've depended upon visions to increase your spirituality. That would be very much like what the Colossian church was going with. Or maybe you define your standing with God based on your discipline. So rules and regulations and your raw discipline of your life. You're a very ordered person, a very controlled person, and you define yourself based on your discipline. And you really can't help but look down on other people who don't share your same convictions. That would be much like the Colossian church. Or maybe it's more subtle. I think there's very much an easy crossover into other things that we look to to find the fullness of Christian experience. The fullness of spiritual life in Christianity is found maybe in a unique spiritual gift. If I could just get my hands on that unique spiritual gift that that person has, and it could be any number of things. Maybe a unique experience. You heard somebody had this great experience with God, and and you believe it. And if you could just have that experience with God, you'd have the fullness of Christian experience. You know, Christianity 2.0, if I just get that experience. Or maybe the advanced Christianity for you is gaining your reputation in the church and being admired by others. If I can just get that, if enough people admire me, that's when I'll feel fulfilled. And the experience of the Christian life will be fulfilling to me. Or maybe it's found in family. Maybe you can look at another person's family or another person's relationship. And you can covet another person's family experience, a blessing that God has given to another person. And you could look at that and say, you know, if I could just get that family experience in the Christian life, then I'll experience the fullness of the Christian life. If we could just get that, and just beyond our reach, and if God would just give it to me, then I'd be experiencing fullness. Maybe I'd be experiencing fullness if I find the perfect church. And if you've hung around here long enough, you've discovered we're not the perfect church. Or if I could just find the perfect relationships, if I could just network with the right people, then the fullness of the Christian life would be, would be mine. Or maybe it's through knowledge. If I just acquire enough books, and if I read every single book that I acquire, I'm tempted to this, then somehow the fullness of the Christian experience will be mine. Like it's in chapter 3 of that book that's under that stack. It's there. If I could just get there, then advanced Christianity and the fullness of life would would be mine. Maybe it's being on mission for God and doing things for God. If I just do enough things, serve enough, do enough, sign up for enough things, and do it well enough, then the fullness of the Christian life will be mine. And what about life management? If I can just successfully manage my life, if I can just order my own private world the right way and manage my life the right way, then the fullness of life would be mine. All those things in some form or fashion we're tempted with and in some form or fashion are addressed by this passage. So... uh, an erroneous thing to do would actually be to take Colossians 15 through 20 and then to go say, you know, it's a new year and because Christ is supreme and because Christ is preeminent, because he's over all things, I'm going to be a better husband. He's, he's worthy of it for crying out loud. Look at him. He's before all things. I'm going to be a better wife. I'm going to be a better son. I'm going to be a better daughter. For crying out loud, he holds all things together and he deserves all this worship. I'll take better care of myself. I'll do a better on the job this year. Or maybe there's spiritual disciplines like, I'm going to finally read the Bible more. I'm going to do more. 
I'm going to be more faithful in attendance to church or to care group. And I would serve more and I want to give more and I want to witness more. And I just want to be more and do more because of the supremacy of Christ. And that might be your conclusions at the end of this passage. But that actually would not be where we would want to start. Because if we start with us, if that's actually what we walked away with, just let's just be more and just let's make more resolutions, we would miss this passage altogether. We'd miss the thrust of what this passage is teaching us altogether. That in the end, Jesus must be enough for us. He must be our head. We must find life and sustenance and grace in him alone. So before we make what can be good resolutions, it's a good resolution to read your Bible more and serve more and give more and those kinds of things. But it's an altogether bad resolution if it moves us away from faith in Jesus Christ. So where we start, just to say, Christ, you are supreme. You are preeminent. Be preeminent in my life. This scripture teaches that, Jesus, you are enough. So, Jesus, be enough for me. Great three-word prayer for 2010. This is the only application, really, that I'm giving today. Is a prayer. Three words. Jesus, be enough. Whatever you're tempted with whatever you're struggling in, wherever you want to see grace, wherever you want to see growth. But if you could just pray that over those things, Jesus, would you be enough for me? Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.